the voicemail of Christian Schultz. I'm not here at the moment, so leave a voicemail and a name and number, and I will get back to you later. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Never mind. This season of Good is sponsored by Kessler Crane, manufacturers of innovative tools for filmmakers. Make sure to check out KesslerCrane.com. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-C-R-A-N-E.com for more info. This season of Good is also sponsored by MusicBed. MusicBed has been changing the game when it comes to music licensing for filmmakers through curating the best indie music in the world. We personally use them all the time, so make sure you do too. For more info, check out MusicBed.com. Now here's the show. Jared Hogan. And I'm Christian Schultz. And this is good. Okay. All right. It's uh it's just Jared right now. Me and Christian. Uh you know what? We're just sometimes we get busy. Sometimes our schedules just don't align. And so um he's on baby duty right now, and I just happen to be sitting at my computer. So um Hey everybody, hope you're doing good. This week is a little different. Um, you know, we just wanted to bring back, uh, actually, I guess our most popular episode to date. Um, this is a rebroadcast of uh, an episode from our first season, and this is our conversation with Mark Romanic. Um, so it's a great episode. It was really cool for Christian and I to talk with with Mark and kind of hear, um, his insight and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so that's what's happening this week. Next week, uh, season two will come to an end, a climactic end. Um, and we're really excited about, um, our episode for next week. So make sure you tune into that. And for even more incentive, uh, we have a special announcement, a very cool secret announcement. So make sure you tune in. Um, I think you guys will like it. So uh, tune in next week for a great episode and to uh, make sure you catch our announcement for what's coming up next for good, the podcast. Uh, but for now, for this week, um, turn your radios up, turn up the volume. And uh, here's our interview with Mark Romanic from season one. Well, Mark, this is a little bit of a dream come true for me. So thanks for hopping on. Uh, my pleasure. You should maybe dream a little bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about this a lot, but you know, it's um, it's a, a huge like leg up to have like cool older siblings. And I remember my brother worked at this record store, and uh, he started bringing home these director label DVDs. And I remember you know watching like Chris Cunningham and Spike Jones and. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, and then uh, watch your stuff, and this is blown away. But thank you for for hopping on with us today. I'm happy to do it. So yeah, let's uh, let's maybe start at the beginning, Mark. Let's like channel little Mark Romantic, and uh, when did the filmmaking bug kind of start to um, start to nip at you? Well, um, my dad was into photography, so he bought me a camera when I was very young. And I just started enjoying taking pictures and seemed to have a kind of a knack for it or some sort of aptitude for making good pictures. And so he he just kept supporting that. He built me a dark room and bought me a really good camera. And so when I was like 11, 12 years old, I, I was printing pictures in a dark room. And, um, you know, just like a, any regular kid, I enjoyed going to the movies. Uh, and... I got a little bored with the photography. Uh, it felt very isolating, you know, just alone in a in a dark room trying to perfect a print. And I, it popped into my head, you know, maybe I could um, use my uncle's Super 8 camera and, and make little movie stories, which, uh, you know, I'm old enough that that wasn't a common dream for a kid. Like, this was before Spielberg and Lucas made these blockbusters that made a lot of suburban kids want to be filmmakers. This was... A pretty weird thing to want to do. So I just started making Super 8 movies when I was about 14 or 15. And what were you watching that was like, I want to make stuff like that? 
Well, I mean, initially I was just watching, you know, kid, kid movies, like, you know, you know, going to see like Mary Poppins and stuff. But the movie that made me want to be a director was um, Kubrick's 2001. Um, and I think part of it was, I mean, it was just so great. It was great to see that as a, like an eight-year-old. And then I saw it again. It was re-released in 70 millimeter when I was 13 years old. That was the really mm. influential one. And I just went, wow, just building this world like this. It's so uh, immersive, and, and every detail was decided upon, and all these innovations and special effects. And um, it was the first time, because this was 19, that would, when it was re-released when I was um, in, in the early 70s. And again, this was before Spielberg and Lucas became these kind of icons. So yeah. it was the first time I ever saw someone talking about a filmmaker in these sort of hushed reverential tones and how did he do this and how did he do that and he's such a perfectionist and it just you know just really it's probably the same as some kid that saw Nirvana or the Beatles and wanted to you know said wow I want to be in a band you know when I saw that film that pretty much did it yeah Mark as like a being that age I guess like the difference maybe now from kids who are seeing movies now like they have like almost instant access to start making films. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what was that like being that age and that time seeing that movie and knowing that you wanted to make films? Like what was the actual next step of, of doing that? Well, you know, basically I asked my uncle if I could borrow his super eight camera, which was normally only used for like people waving on the beach in a holiday or something. <laughs> And I, um, I said, you know, I could tell a story. And, you know, that involved coming up with something to film and asking your friends to do it and running around the neighborhood and begging your parents for money for the film. And then you had to take the film to the, to the pharmacy or the camera store and wait three days for it to come back. And, you know, it, it, it was a, more of an effort in a way. Like you had to be really want right. to do it. But there, was no, there were no other options. I mean, video was starting up but it was very uncommon you know to have a video camera yeah so that was the that was the process you know i mean it was fun uh, you know that's all we knew <laughs> what did your dad do growing up mark he was a real estate guy but he was very uh, artistic and perfectionist and uh, uh you know he designed all the lobbies uh, of the hotel of not the hotels of the of the office buildings and that was his thing he got to design yeah. the lobby and you know he was uh he was a guy of his era, you know, he, he was in the Korean War and uh, just, he just was luckily a photography buff, but he, he was very artistically oriented as well and, and uh, was very, very supportive. Like he didn't, it wasn't like I had to go into real estate when I, when I expressed sure. an interest in arts or photography, he really supported it. Uh, so I owe, owe him a lot. He, he passed away a few months ago. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So, Mark, you uh, are eight years old. You see a movie with your dad. And then um, where do you go from there? What's next? Yeah, so I started making these Super 8 films. And then the really freaky, lucky thing was I went to a public high school north of Chicago called Nutrier East, which is still there. And it was one of the most – this is the early 70s, so it's still kind of hippie time. So this is one of the most progressive, liberal um, public high schools in the country – and it had it 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 started a four year film production and theory program in a public high school in the seventies. That's amazing. And not only was that really weird, like how many four year film programs are there in high school now? <laughs> <laughs> so right. that, that's pretty bizarre. And um, not only did they do that, but they recruited the teachers from the Art Institute of Chicago, which was this bastion of avant gardeism and non narrative cinema, and so. Basically, in this room on the fourth floor of this public high school, these 14- and 15-year-old kids' minds were being completely blown <laughs> by these professors that were showing us Kenneth Anger films and Stan Brakhage films and Michael Snow films. And I'm sure all of these names are obscure to your listeners, but you can all look it up online. But there was um, a really exciting uh a branch of cinema that was pure art, non-narrative cinema. There would, you know, often be no sound. It was often abstract, um, and some of this stuff they would have they would have been fired for showing us because the Kenneth Anger films are like super fucked up and homoerotic, and and I think this was a deliberate gesture by these teachers to kind of fuck with these kids' minds. Right. <laughs> um, and so I don't know if you ever read the book Outliers, but. 
when I read that book, I felt very lucky that I, I kind of ticked every box of those outlier, uh, th- uh, you know, those qualifications for an outlier because there's an example of if I was, if my dad wasn't a camera buff and didn't support me making films and if he didn't take me to 2001 and then if I didn't happen to go to a public high school that had a four-year film production and theory program that showed us non-narrative cinema <laughs> – um, and then, you know, when I came out of high school uh, and, and also grew up during the golden age of cinema, really, of commercial cinema, seeing all those movies of the 70s that everybody all yeah. waxes poetic about for really good reason. So I saw all of those films. So on the during the week, I was seeing Stan Brakhage's Mothlight, and then I would go to the cinema on the weekend, and I'd see Jaws or Dog Day Afternoon or Chinatown or Barry Lyndon or Nashville or, you know, yes. The Conformist or you name it. It goes on and on and on, like how great the cinema was then. So I, you know, I, I really had a unique exposure to a, a very wide spectrum of what cinema could be. It could be something as commercial as Jaws, which I still think is a work of art, or it could be a non-narrative piece of art cinema by Stan Brakhage, and it could be anything. And I, and I, so I felt that film was very, very um, moldable and, and, um, and um, very, that the possibilities for film were pretty limitless. So I was very lucky, in other words, to be in the right place at the right time. And then later I ended up kind of being in the right place at the right time again, where there was this the beginning of, a, of an independent film movement in, in America, yeah. um, which, you know, it started with Cassavetes and there were all sorts of, you know, uh, Morris Engel and all sorts of incredible independent filmmakers. But there was a, a kind of a new wave movement happening with like Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and, and uh, other filmmakers. And so in the 80s, I got an opportunity to make a feature film and I got uh, a friend of mine became a, like an investment banker, and he said, "I think I can get you a million dollar loan, unsecured <laughs> loan, to make an independent movie. Do you have a script?" And I lied and I said yes. Uh, and I got my I got my friend Keith Gordon, an actor and director now at the time, and I said, "Well, let's think up a movie." And we we wrote a script in three weeks, and we fucking made it. That's amazing. For a million dollars in 1983. Now, I am very embarrassed by it. I wasn't ready to make a movie. I don't think it's a good movie. Some people like it. It's pretty hard to find, which I'm very happy about. But I did. <laughs> I, I, I was part of that movement of independent American, you know, kind of New York-based cinema. Um, and the film, you know, it just sort of disappeared. And, and I got more involved with music videos, which, again, was another being in the right place at the right time because – I got opportunities to make music videos uh, when this MTV thing was taking off, which was a big cultural moment, you know, pop cultural moment. Okay, Mark, I am curious about, I kind of read this, doing a little research for our conversation. Tell me about this whole uh, Brian De Palma thing. How did you guys get connected? Yeah, that's another another lucky instance. Um, How did I connect with, oh, so another instance of my father really helping me. And, you know, so... I guess this this part of the story was I was in high school. I was excited by cinema. I was making Super 8 movies. I was learning all about this cool avant-garde cinema and seeing commercial cinema on the weekends. And I said, well, what's the next step? I kind of asked myself that question. And I said, yeah, I would love to get on a set of a movie and learn how a movie is made by being on, on a set. And there, that was almost like Willy Wonka's golden ticket or some like velvet rope <laughs> that you, you know, was, a, was really hard. Like, how do you get across that velvet rope into that world? So I said to my dad, I said, do you know anybody in your business dealings that has anything to do with feature filmmaking? And cause we're, we're in Chicago, we're not in LA or New York. Yeah, right. He said, actually, yeah, I know this guy who's a lawyer who helps create tax shelter financing for films, which was a big thing in the 70s. And uh, let me let me ask him. So he asked him, and, and it, that guy knew John Cassavetes. This is all true, by the way. Oh so God. that guy, <laughs> whose name was Bert Cantor, knew John Cassavetes, and he wrote John Cassavetes a letter saying, there's this kid in Chicago, his name is Mark Romanek, his father's a good friend of mine. Can you Can you go on one of your film sets sometime? So he w- John Cassavetes was coming to Chicago to star in a Brian De Palma film called The Fury. This is in 1977 or 78. So John Cassavetes said, sure. And uh, so then I, I go on the set uh, of the movie and I meet John Cassavetes. And I know who John Cassavetes is. Like I saw Woman Under the Influence. Like I, I John Cassavetes was an idol of mine. And I'm like... 
wow. So he was the nicest guy on the planet. He sat me down next to him and said, so tell me about yourself. Well, what are you interested in? What kind of, what do you want to make movies? What kind of movies do you want to make? I was, and so I'm in heaven. <laughs> so the producer said, oh yeah, yeah, you're that kid that Bert told me about. Yeah, well just hang around and help out. So I go, well shit, he's telling me I can hang around and help out. He's not telling me what I'm supposed to do. So I'm not going to hang around craft service. I'm going to hang around the director. Right. <laughs> so I interested, you know, I was a very nervy kid. So I introduced myself to Brian De Palma. And I said, Mr. De Palma, I'm on PA on the film, and you know, is there any, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. He said, well, yeah, actually, you can get me a cup of coffee. I like you know, two milks, two sugars. So I kind of started just getting De Palma his coffee every couple hours. So I was kind of just standing there behind his chair, and I got to see everything. Gosh. Uh, and so he, I stayed in touch with him uh, over the years, and he was you know, a very, very kind mentor who was really interested in teaching. And he ended up going to... Back to his alma mater, which was, um, oh shit, I'm forgetting the name of the school. It used to be an all-girls school in upstate New York. Um, Vassar. It was Vassar. And he went back and he taught a film production class. And uh, he decided that he, he would just make a feature film. And that would be the class. So he got some investor to get like $500,000, I think. And we made a, a, a feature film called Home Movies. It starred Keith Gordon and uh, uh, his his wife, that actress that was in a bunch of his movies, and um, Kirk Douglas was in it. For, believe it or not, <laughs> and I I was an AD. I was the second AD on the on the film, and um, that's how I met Keith Gordon. We became best friends. That's amazing. So going, I guess going from your set experience and stuff like that. How did you actually get to making music videos? Well, my first movie, that movie Static that I made, um, it had a lot of eclectic, it kind of had an eclectic score of, of found music and source music and pop music. And one of the songs I used was uh, a band that was popular in, at the time in the 80s called The The. And, uh, and I became friends with the singer in the band, a guy named Matt Johnson, who kind of was the whole band. He was kind of like Nine Inch Nails at the time. He was, and, uh, and he asked me to make a music video because there weren't these superstar music video directors that had names like Spike Jones and right. Michelle Gondry yet. It's like, you're kind of like, oh, I know this guy. He's, he's made a film, so he must know. He probably knows how to get a camera, and so I'll ask him yeah. to do it. And so he asked me to make a music video, and I said, oh, well, that could be fun. And I made – that was my first music video, and it was probably about 1986. What, what had you seen at that point? Like what was kind of the um – the state of music videos in 1986. Yeah, it was um, it was sort of pre. I think it was kind of pre the emergence of David Fincher and Michael Bay. So it was a lot of these British directors like um, oh shit, now I can't remember their names, but uh, the guy that direct like the video that really imp imp impressed me was um, Peter Gabriel's Shock the Monkey. You know, it was the early days of MTV. Yeah. Um, uh, I just can't think of his name. Russell Mulcahy, that was the director's name. And there was Godley and Krem that did, you know, interesting music videos. It was, um, so that was my exposure mainly. Where a lot of British directors, I think, were hot at the time. So when The The came to you and like making a music video, were you pulling from anything like that? Or were you just kind of like blank canvas? Like what was kind of informing decisions that you were making? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I really ever thought about that. I mean, I think it was a little bit of influence from the, the what was going on, but it was kind of just a blank canvas. I just sort of, you know, closed my eyes and listened to the music and came up with these images and said, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> and, is, that and, is that pretty par for the course for how you, um, I don't know, come up with um, concepts or treatments or whatever for music videos? You know, it would vary every time. Like sometimes an idea would come immediately. Sometimes the artist had a direction they wanted to point you in, which you, you could either accept or completely reject, you know. Yeah. Um, sometimes I really liked a song but didn't have a great idea, so I would just start flipping through art books and graphic design books until mm -hmm. something kind of clicked. And then when something clicked, you kind of looked at it and went, well, why, why is that giving me a little, you know, kind of yeah. shiver? Hmm. And you try to figure something. I mean, you know, it would be a million different ways. Sometimes I would fail. Like, I would get a great opportunity to make a music video and really like the song. I just didn't think of anything really interesting. Yeah. Um, how much... I'm, I'm kind of 
coming up against this a little bit, um, making music videos from time to time, getting getting offers from people who like send me a track. And I guess I'm wondering for you, how much do you have to connect with the track personally for you? Well, you know, I'm, you know, how do I put this diplomatically? I mean, you know, sometimes you just want to work and you, and you know that like I was in a position where I could get a track that I knew would be a big hit, not necessarily the kind of music I listen to day to day, but I knew that at least if I put in this effort to make this particular video, people all over the world will probably see it. So yeah. sometimes you take a more commercial track, like, um, um, you know, if Taylor Swift comes to you, you know, I mean, that video, I think it has one, one and a half billion hits. Right. So you go, well, I can make something charming and fun that, you know, my daughters will like and people will, it's really going to influence people. Like a lot of people will see it. And so you go, well, that's a good reason to do it. You know, and other times it's music you love and you just want to do it for its own sake. Okay. So you started with the, the. Um, I'm trying to like, was your, what was like the first big one? The one that kind of like started to take off. Cause I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine that I made. Yeah. That you made like, I'm just trying to imagine doing videos for a couple of years and then doing a video for Bowie. <laughs> like, what does that feel like? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I did a lot of crappy music videos and I was learning how to do it. And, um, and then I got asked to do a music video for, Katie Lang for a song called Constant Craving. Yeah. And um, that was a humongous hit. Um, and so, and the video was rather good, it, you know, for its time. It was, um, I imagined like some opening night performance of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And, um, and uh, which was all, you know, arty and, but it was very, ha pretty handsomely made. Um, yeah. And it was a huge hit. And so I think that what happened was, uh, you know, other major artists saw the video and said, well, who directed that? And that, that pretty much started an influx of calls from A-listers where I yeah. got a call from Madonna and that led to a call from, you know, Lenny Kravitz and then Nine Inch Nails and then, you know, those artists at that, at that time that were popular. Why, why was the interest in music videos so hot at that specific time? I mean, even on the, the side of like the budgets that were being spent on music videos is like vastly different than what they are now in some degree. Um, well, I guess like, like, I guess MTV was like the internet of its time. Like it really, nothing like it had ever existed before. And certainly music videos existed since the 1920s, you know, they're right. probably what you would call a music video that was made in the silent era. I mean, making short films to songs is not, wasn't a new thing, but having this one repository to, to see them and having, mm. um, there be a kind of coinciding with, I guess, a, um, a boom time in the music business and, um, labels, uh, deciding that it was a really viable marketing tool that you could spend a hundred thousand dollars on a music video and you would make three hundred thousand dollars back right, right. because you made it, um, you know. And I don't know; it just turned into like one of those cultural moments that you can't really predict. But, but um, yeah, I don't. Know Did you kind of find yourself like in the middle of this? You know, you make that video for Katie Lang, and then. Kravitz and all this stuff starts to happen. Was it like a natural progression for you or did you kind of find yourself thinking like, how did I, how did I get here? Yeah, it was definitely the latter actually, because I never had any interest, like I never had any interest in making music videos because music videos weren't a thing to be interested in, you know, yeah. when I was real younger, you know, it's like you said to me, uh, I don't know, but maybe before we started the podcast, you said that you, when you were young, your brother showed me this DVD of my music videos. Like, for me, I didn't have that. I had Fellini and Kubrick and Bergman right, and right. Robert Altman and Roman Polanski. So I only wanted to make feature films. I had no yeah. interest in making music videos. Music videos were like, okay, I'll make another one while I try to figure out how to make a movie. And, <laughs> oh, shit, Lenny Kravitz, and that's a good song. Okay, well, I'll do another one, and I'll keep trying to figure out how to make a movie. And then 12 years later, I really hadn't made a movie, and I was – making music video after music video because I, I, you know, I guess I wanted to ride that wave. Um, yeah. but in some ways I, it was like, 
uh, I kind of wish that I had nipped it, not nipped it in the bud, but I, I wish I had said, okay, I've made enough of these now. If I, I got to really focus on making a movie or I'm not going to, oh, David Bowie's calling. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, and so uh, I look back with a certain amount of regret, but I, it's not really regret because, you know, how lucky was I, but I, 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 I wish I'd made more movies and I still want to be making movies, you know? Yeah. Did you, so did you ever what, feel in that period kind of like angst? Kind of like why I want to be making movies right now? Towards the end, I mean, because it was so um, it was so intoxicating to get a phone call from yeah. a David Bowie or a Madonna. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I'm in my late, early 30s in L.A. and I'm a hot music video director and David Bowie's calling. Like, I was having a really good time. Um, yeah. I was making ridiculous amounts of money as a bachelor doing this incredibly i mean i was you know so i wouldn't say that i had angsty regret because i was having a lot of fun but towards the <laughs> end after you know you like you've done it 20 times and yeah you still haven't made a movie yeah towards the end i'd start like shit i want to make a movie what what's going on here you know what kind of you know i'm sure just like hustling and like making as much work as you did during that kind of i don't know like 10 12 year span um did that kind of like success that drive did that start to take a toll on you in any way uh no no because i i I was pretty selective i mean i might have done a lot of things but i pretty much was able to only do the things i wanted to do and if i felt like i was doing too much i would stop for three weeks or a month you know so no i i mean i i I manage my life i try to manage my life and my work especially now that i have children uh, pretty pretty rigorously, so that doesn't happen, you know. How many kids do you have? I have two little girls. I have three little girls. <laughs> oh wow! Are you serious? Yeah. How old are they? Yeah. Oh, I um, thought you were too young for that. I, you seem I probably young. am, man. I probably am too yeah. young for that. <laughs> <laughs> this musical break is brought to you by our friends at Musicbed. Good listeners, make sure to sign up for the Film and Music Conference presented by Musicbed and Film Supply. The the early bird passes are only available until July 1st, so get on it. Uh, One of the speakers in their amazing lineup is National Geographic Global Creative Director, Andy Baker. Andy, if you would, introduce yourself and tell us what you're going to be talking about at the Film and Music Conference. Hey guys, this is Andy Baker from National Geographic. I am really looking forward to the Film and Music Conference coming up this September. I think it's going to be a really inspiring event, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about breaking the mold and sort of staying ahead of change in the media industry. Uh, It's a real challenge, and it's going to have to require everybody to think outside of their normal comfort zones, and that's what we've been doing at National Geographic for the last year or two. And uh, I think it's going to be a really inspiring event, and can't wait to see you guys out there. Cool. Thanks, Andy. Once again, the Film and Music Conference is in Fort Worth, Texas on September 29th and 30th. And we're pumped to see you out there. So make sure to come say hi. And now the rest of the show. For more than a decade, Kessler Crane has been designing and manufacturing innovative tools for filmmakers, including camera cranes, jibs, motion control systems, sliders, dollies, tripods, and other camera accessories. They also have a commitment to making products in the USA. For more info, go to KesslerCrane.com slash good. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-C-R-A-N-E dot com slash good. Also enter the code GOODPODCAST during checkout. Save 10% off your entire order. Now, let's get back to the show. Okay, I, I just want to get into like some nerdy questions. Yeah. I mean, and I know I'm not alone, but like, I mean, I grew up watching VH1 every single morning, basically. So I've seen multiple of your I mean at least if possibly every single one of your music videos multiple times growing up and even you know it's so interesting now you know knowing that we were going to talk to you going back and watching all of those like how much they still hold up is pretty incredible yeah but like was there one that was just like outstandingly hard yeah the, the, there's an easy answer to that well there's kind of two actually in different ways but the, I did a video for um, audio slave um, Tom Morello and Chris Cornell's yeah. band. And um, it was 
a very simple idea on paper, which was I wanted to have this incendiary fireworks display, like the climax of the best fireworks display you've ever <laughs> seen at the 4th of July behind the band and around the band uh, for the whole three and a half minutes. And which is, which, and they were all going to be kind of lit by the fireworks. In some ways, it's kind of a simple idea, like design a three and a half minute fireworks display and just set it off while the band is playing and you shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> and this was close to 9-11, and, and so the police came. They were going to shut us down because people, people thought there was some sort of battle going on. And, and, and then the amplifier broke, and it's, it's, it, 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 was a, it was a long string of disasters so that was that was really scary what i want to know is like how going kind of back to like the treatment of that like what and this kind of a i would like to know like where does it all start for every music video but like is it literally just kind of listening to the song closing your eyes and seeing what comes to your mind or is it some or is there some more of a formula that's kind of like works for you well, you know, I don't, I definitely don't have a formula and I would say that everyone is different, you know, it, because, you know, I don't know, music is, it affects you so subjectively and so powerfully usually, even good or bad music, even mediocre music, it affects you. And so every song is different and every combination of artist and me was different. And so there was absolutely no formula. You know, as I said before, sometimes I would just listen to it a hundred times and so nothing would come, and so I would flip through art and photography and graphic design books and, and, and magazines until something clicked, you know, and then you kind of follow that lead. Um, you know, other times an idea would just pop into my head. Like, I, I think with, like, Audio Slave, just when I heard the bombast of the, of the heaviness of the rock and roll, I said, well, the only thing that is, could match that is explosions. <laughs> and, and I said, and I got this idea that there'd be all these explosions around them, and that became too dangerous, and then I thought of fireworks. And frankly, it's a, that's, a, that's as that's that. That's as good a music video idea as you're going to get. Like it's it's actually it's very simple. It's never been done, um, and and it's going to look amazing. Right. And uh, and uh, and it's one idea. It's really one idea. Um, yeah. So it's different every time. I don't. Well, know how how important on. is it to you making music videos? Like to put yourself in a box, kind of creatively. Because I see that in a lot of the stuff that you do, which is even with the, you know you mentioned the closer video, like only shooting on hand crank cameras and like and is there like certain do you enjoy doing that or do you feel like it's um, like if something is too open or too broad, like it gets muddled in some way? Like, is it important to you like make boundaries for yourself? Well, maybe it goes back to seeing 2001 where, you know, you're, I was so impressed by this kind of immersive world that this guy had created, you know, all from scratch, you know. And um, so, you know, you set yourself rules so that, that, that this immersiveness, this immersive world that you're creating, you know, feels cohesive and specific. So, you know, and the music boxes you in in some respect because, you know, it's the nature of the genre of music. If you... And the and the rhythm of it and what the song is about that those are some things that box you in. So, yeah, I think it's important to give yourself rules and boundaries uh, when you're shooting. Like you say, look, we're only going to shoot this on one lens, right, or we're right, only right. going to shoot it from the point of view of where someone could be standing, you know, with a camera yeah. in their hand. You know, you make rules for yourself so the thing doesn't just go all over the place. Right, Mark. I know Christians waiting to ask this, but he just wants to know what it's like to hang out with Jay-Z. So <laughs> is that a real question? <laughs> no, it's not a real question. <laughs> trying to, trying to I do want to talk about 99 problems though, because more so of the idea of like when it came out and you see even over time like how um iconic that video is. Is that something that you guys were intentional about? I know it's it's like you're never intentional about like hoping that it like takes over the world. But um, <laughs> did you, when that started happening, what was going through your head, I guess, with specifically that video? I think, I think that, um, you know, I, I, such as it was, I had this rep reputation as a video director in that little pond of, you know, music video making. And I had never really been asked to do a rap video for some reason uh, in all those years. I actually did one early on. I did a hip hop video with De La Soul, but, um, I'd never been really asked to make a rap video. And so here I'm getting this, a track that I knew was obviously 
unbelievably great. Like if you're going right. to, you know, on a scale of one to 10, this track was a 14. <laughs> and, uh, and Jay, I could tell that Jay-Z really wanted to do something. Like he, he wanted to make something. He knew yeah. what he had. And so you, he blew that wind into the sails of the whole thing. And I guess I just wanted to carpet bomb it. I just, I wanted to say like, if I'm going to do a rap video yeah. and for this track, it is going to fucking rock. You know, it is going, that you, it is, has to be undeniable. So I just, you know, was very ambitious. I went way over budget. I uh, was shot for five or six days when most videos were made in a day. And, and right. I just said, this is, um, this is going to be great. And, and, and you know, Jay-Z kind of gave me the idea, which is he said, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be about where I grew up and where I came from. And I said, and, and he said, I wanted to be in black and white. And so I said, well, that's New York street photography is what you're describing. And I'm, I knew a lot about New York street photography. And I said, I've never seen a music video that's that really gritty New York street photography. Huh. And that was the idea. That was the, let's just light them with fireworks. The simplicity of the idea was New yeah. York street photography um, about Marcy, Marcy projects. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but I guess I was like really determined to kill it. Down yeah. That one. Did you, did you have like images that you're like, I have to capture this or were you kind of like wandering around trying to find things? How did that process go for you? Um, well, I, I had this funny image in my mind of Rick Rubin in a cowboy hat and a fur coat <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, just being this kind of, cowboy pimp and and so i asked him to asked him to be in the video and and <laughs> when he said yes then i i don't know that was i don't know i i i you know there's very little in that video i think that's directly ripped off from any new york street photography it was sure. just like if i was you know i'm trying to think some of the names of the guys like if i was bruce davidson and i went into marcy projects in 1982 or whatever it was yeah. Uh, what would it, what would those pictures look like? You know, and, mm. you know. It was also influenced by a Russian film called "The Cranes Are Flying," which I highly recommend your film student listeners seek out. Um, yeah. Which is incredibly shot, is directed by the guy that directed and shot by the guys that directed and shot um, "I Am Cuba," another hmm. unmissable film. I have a question. Uh, Mark, like going from music video to, um, you know, one hour photo or never let me go. Um, I'm kind of trying to navigate this myself too. Like how, how did you, um, transition from kind of using people at, and maybe this is not how you see it, but using people as, you know, more or less like models or figures. Now you're seeing them as dynamic rounded characters. What was that like yeah. for you? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I guess it's just a mental exercise of shifting gears into a new, what, what is almost a complete, you know, the only similarity between making music videos and making a, a feature film is that there's cameras and lights and, act, you know, and people you're <laughs> pointing a camera. The, the disciplines and the gimmicks and the tricks and the, and the methods that are, 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 kind of useless for one yeah. from the other. So you just, you know, I took some a lot of time off from making anything like that because I was prepping the film and you just try to shift gears into this is a completely different discipline. This is about moments of truth about the human condition from moment to moment and yeah. what people want and what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what they're trying to accomplish and and understanding the theme of the movie that you're making and being, you know, having everything be expressive of that and working with actors and rehearsing. And you just kind of shift out of that other mode of thinking into a new mode of thinking, you know. It just seems like it, it could be a difficult transition, you know. To well, I think like anytime someone gives you some money and you're the guy that has to figure it all out, uh, you know, that's going to give you pause. Yeah. In general, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a I, I wouldn't say it's a hard job in the sense that there are people all over the world that are you know working in menial labor. You know, that's hard job, but yeah, it's um you know it, you're exposed every time, so it doesn't matter whether you've shifted from music video to a, a film or, or or back. You're you know every time is kind of a tightrope walk without a net. Why? Like, what part of the process keeps you like coming back? 
you know, because it's it's difficult, like you said, like what part of the process are you like, I, I want to experience that again? Making movies, not commercials and music videos anymore, um, which had their own pleasures and rewards, but, you know, um, I feel like kind of, you know, used them up for me. Yeah. Uh, uh, the thing that brings you back is you have fallen in love with a story or you've mm-hmm. fallen in love with the characters in a story and you feel compelled to absolutely no matter what you have to tell the world your here's the story i heard and this is how i picture it and i really want you to see this story um and then the pleasures of when that goes well on the set and 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 you know the sun hits the thing and the actor nailed the dialogue and the composition is perfect and and you, you're just wow, and and you try to make that happen. You try to nudge the universe into having those little <laughs> magical perfections happen every single, you know, all day for fifty days of your schedule or whatever. <laughs> yeah, is you know the challenge of that, and and how hard it is, and how fun it is, and how horrifying it is. And I mean, it's the it's the ultimate like um, ride. Yeah. Uh, and then when it works, and and luckily, I kind of feel like. Uh, I'm proud of the two films I've made, you know, the two real films I've made. Uh, and you, you watch that with an audience of, you know, in some cases, in one case, you know, 1,500 people. Yeah. And they're connected with it and they're involved in it and, and they are happy they're seeing the story. And there's no feeling like that, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you describe that, that um, feeling of spending kind of a season of your life working on something, whether it was uh, one hour photo or never let me go or anything that you're coming up with in the future. But like the idea of like making something and like um, spending all that time and, and then kind of letting it go. And what is the feeling like, I guess like the idea that it's done now that you, you have no more control over it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's like, I suppose it must be like painting a beautiful giant painting. I mean, you know, it's this process that you go through where you have a million feelings every day, all day, and you're excited about it, and you're depressed about it, and you hate it, and you love it, and you're, and you're having the time of your life, and you're having, like, you want to shoot yourself literally, and, uh, and then, you know, and, you know, and then that, so that you have that, all those range of experiences in the pre, the writing, and the pre-production, and then the making of it, and then the post-production of it. And the, the letting go of it and the talking about it to the press and showing it at festivals and having people come up and hug you, tell you how much they love your movie, and then having people yelling at you how much they hate your movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so there's, it's, it's a real ride. Like I say, it's like, it's like one of the uh, ultimate uh, Disney rides. Uh, you said earlier about, um, about Static, how you made it kind of too early. Maybe, you know, like life experience didn't quite have like your, your voice yet. Um, now you've made a ton of work, amazing work. How would you kind of describe your kind of perspective on life and how does that inform the work that you do? Wow. That's a big question. Well, uh, I'll try it. I don't know if I can answer it off the top, (laughs) but, um, you know, the, uh, this notion that just because I wanted to be like Steven Spielberg and Orson Welles didn't mean I was, you know, like in the sense that they made their first film in their 20s. And right. so I, I, if I'm going to be anything, I've got to make my first film in my 20s. And, um, you know, I realized that I didn't have any sort of point of view about life. I had no, I, I, I lived such a nice sheltered suburban existence. I didn't know anything really. I didn't understand what I could offer so I made the film because I had this opportunity and, and I don't regret it because if someone said to you, here's a million dollars, you want to make a movie? You're going to, you, you, you say yes. Yes. <laughs> but it was a process of realizing like, I don't really know what I'm doing with the, in terms of the technique or craft. And I don't yeah. really know, uh, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Um, so I said, maybe I should know that both of those things, meaning craft and what you've got to offer Yeah. before I make another movie. So, uh, and I used the music video experience as, as like an elite film school where I really yeah. got to learn my craft. And that was like the 10,000 hour thing in the, in the Outliers sure. book. That was my 10,000 hours. Um, so, oh, so that was sort of the beginning of it was, right. um, 
so I realizing that, and then so your question, I, I guess, is what, where have I arrived at twenty years later, twenty five sure. years later? Um, that may be per, too, you know, a too personal to answer, and b too impossible to answer. And that's sort of the whole reason that I want to make movies, yeah, is to explore that answer to to that question. It seems to have something to do with outsiders and. Uh, people looking desperately trying to connect and feeling on the outside. There's some sort of theme about that that I seem to be coming yeah. attracted to in most of the things I, I end up working on. So, um, last one, then we'll get to, to Q&A. But um, what advice would you give to um, someone who's trying to do what you're doing? Well, the answer I always give to that is there was an interview that Stanley Kubrick gave uh, when he was promoting Lolita in 1960, and the interviewer asked him to enumerate ways that he thought the film business could be improved. And so he he made a whole list of these ideas, and then at the end of it he said, and I feel like these are some of the ways that filmmakers and and film studios can make films that are both more daring and more sincere. Mm. And that was his conclusion uh, there. And I went, the thing that hit me like a ton of bricks was this phrase, daring and sincere. Yeah. I said, my God, that is the best definition of what makes something good I've ever heard. Huh. Because sometimes you get one and you don't get the other. Sometimes, usually you get neither. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> you get, sometimes you get something very daring. It's completely never been done before and it's inventive. And But there's no there there. There's no sincere expression about the, the, the point of view about the human predicament. Yeah. And then you get other films that are deeply sincere. And, and a lot of these are Sundance films where <laughs> you've seen it. You've seen them like a million times and they're not daring in any way whatsoever. They're, they're progr- programmatic usually. So, um, so I guess the answer is to your question is, try to make something that you yourself can define as both daring and sincere. Um, and then it's inevitable that it'll kind of get some, it will find an audience Yeah. because if you have neither or not, or only one of those things, it's just not going to cut it, especially now getting back to our conversation about how easy it is for everyone to just make a film with their iPhone if they want right. and cut and cut it on their iPhone. I mean, I've done that. Um, it's going to separate the the uh, you know the, the wheat from the chaff in the sense so that you got to really do something strong to yeah. even get noticed in this yeah. tsunami endless tsunami of media that people are inundated with and social media not just media and games so you know you've got basically the answer to your question is you've got to really fucking kick ass <laughs> <laughs> got to really fucking do something like i get all these emails from uh film students saying would you look at my film uh i, I shot it for eight hundred dollars in in six hours like that's a like um like a pre like i'm supposed to excuse the film for being unwatchable and, and <laughs> terrible because you had so little time and money like i don't really give a shit yeah i want you know i want to see something great yeah. and good on you for making this thing but you know it's not great yourself. Right. Hmm. You know? I love it. Well, Mark, thanks for uh, chatting with us. We're going to do um, some Q&A questions real quick. Okay, cool. Somebody asked, like, why so, many, why so few features compared to your commercial work? Um, well, I'm a little bit picky, but it's also that a combination of me being a bit picky and the state of the film business, the kind of films that I've tried to make and that I want to make, um, have just been very difficult. In, uh, and I've been trying to kind of adapt to this new mode of, of very corporate filmmaking where you either can make films for $3 million or you have to make a th- $150 million movie with right. a superhero. And, you know, I only want to be in the middle in between those things. And um, yeah. so it's just been very frustrating, frankly. And I'm very grateful about the commercials because I have a life. I have a wife and a two children and a mortgage right, and right. I, I need to make a living. And, um, and uh, I'm so grateful for those commercials, but I, I am frustrated and I, I want to be making 
tons of movies and it's just not happening. Uh, somebody asked, when was the last time that you pitched for a job and what did it look like? Well, every time I make a commercial, I'd say not every time, I'd say like nine times out of ten, I'm pitching to get the job. I'm, I'm pitching against other filmmakers. I mean, occasionally they will call me for what they call a single bid, meaning we just want you to, to right. do this. And, and But that's pretty rare. Um, that's so I'm always, you know, there's there's a lot of dog and pony that I still am engaged in in order to land these jobs, you know. Yeah. So what was the last one that you, can you say what the last one or just generally what the last one you pitched on was? Well, every time I do a commercial and I do a commercial to like maybe once or twice a month, you know, I mean, uh, I'm always, uh, it's every one. I mean, I just did a, I'm trying to think what commercial, I just did the Kobe, well, the Kobe Bryant ad that just came out. I just did this, the Kobe Bryant Nike farewell with the fans singing to him. And uh, <laughs> that actually was a single bit where they, for some reason they just said, we just want we want you to do this maybe because it was musical and um but yeah i mean i'm pitching every week i'm pitching you know yeah that's amazing um okay next question so which contemporary musician would you like to work with the most well i've never made a radiohead video um i like sufjan stevens a lot um I think Lady, I'm, you know, making a music video in the right way with Lady Gaga would obviously yeah. be interesting. You know, and then there's just my idols, which are not, they're not really music video artists, but like Tom Waits or Bob Dylan or something. Yeah. Um, I really, you know, if when, when Elliot Smith was alive, I wish I'd yeah. made a Nirvana video, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just and all the things you're fans of, basically. I, um, I watched your uh, Johnny Cash music video the other day, and um, that thing just elicits such an emotional response. I know you've probably gotten that one billion times, <laughs> but for real, I can't watch that thing without getting like a little misty. Do you feel that way? Like when you watch stuff that you make anymore, do you, do you have that sensation or are you too close to it or? Um, you know, I would, I, when I first released it and I didn't know what we really had and, you know, I didn't know how it was going to be received because it was so unlike a music video. Like I yeah, didn't even know right. what I, what, like, what have we done here? <laughs> Um, and then when it was getting that kind of emotional reaction, I suddenly, for the first time, looked at it through objective eyes and, and I could see, yeah. oh my gosh, this is quite powerful. What is the biggest thing that you've learned from music videos that you've brought into feature films? Well, I mean, I try to bring very, very little because as I said before, it's it's almost like two completely different activities, music right. videos and films, because the intentions are so incredibly different. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, but the thing that I would bring, I would say, is a, is a confidence with the fact that I could think an idea up and communicate it successfully enough to a crew yeah. to collaborate with them, to bring it to fruition in yeah. a satisfying way. And you bring that confidence that was built up over making several music videos. And they're often so aesthetically kind of specific that, you know, these attempts to kind of create a world, uh, um, successfully because you're, you're learned the craft and you've learned how to work with your crew and, um, bringing that general thing to um, a movie is what's helpful. Right. Confidence with the te technique so that you can really yeah. focus on what's more important, which is telling the story and working with the actors. Yeah. Perfect. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. All right, guys. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. All right, man. See you soon. Have a good Bye. one. This episode of Good was mixed by Christian Stropko, or as we like to call him, Christian number two. As always, our music today was created by Cubby. That's Cubby with two Bs, and you can check out more of his music at CubbySounds.com. Also, this season of Good is produced by our new friend, Mary Taylor, who'd also like to say something. Guys, seriously, where's my money? To find out more info about today's episode, make sure to go to GoodThePodcast.com. 